Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Hungary's Viktor Orban is a proud, illiberal Democrat. We'll discuss the example his latest election triumph sets for Europe and the rest of the world. Harassment, discrimination, and inequality are common in the workplace for women. I'll talk with three female colleagues about their experiences in journalism. And we find out what the I Heart Halal Festival is all about. Don't forget you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. Hungary's Viktor Orban may have perfected the populist playbook. The coalition led by Orban's Fidesz party won its third straight supermajority in a parliamentary election yesterday. They campaigned against refugees, the EU, the UN, and George Soros. With me is R. Daniel Kellerman, professor of political science and the Jean Monnet chair in European Union politics at Rutgers University. Thanks for joining us, Daniel. Thanks for having me. What should people make of this election result? It's the third straight big election result for Fidesz coalition. And do you have to say, well, I may not agree with Orban about everything, but he's got a great big democratic mandate here? No, I wouldn't put it that way. I mean, yes, he is uh, popular with uh, a big block of the electorate. But I think the, the first thing I'd say is that it's wrong to think of this, and we make a big mistake if we think of this as a sort of normal democratic election. Even that term, illiberal democrat, um, I would take issue with because really what we saw here, even in, in the report of the OSCE today, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, you know, they, they noted how unfair the conditions of the election were because of the government uh, total control and manipulation of the media and uh, this, uh, and then other factors as well, distributing public monies in the weeks before the election. That basically the the party and the state, that is uh, Orbán's party and the Hungarian state, were sort of melded into one, and he used the state's resources, you know, to assure victory. And on top of that, of course, he already rigged the election system back a few years ago to make sure that it would be favorable to him. So, you know, the last thing I'd say there is that when you see this two-thirds result, that sounds overwhelming, right? But in fact. There were actually more votes in total for opposition uh, party candidates than for Fidesz, his party, right? Uh, so they won slightly more, but yet his party comes out with two-thirds of the seats in parliament because of this highly disproportional election system that he rigged in his own favor. What does more Fidesz party mean for Hungarians? If they've already got a rigged system now, what more can they get? Well... Yeah, I mean, actually, uh, the fact that Hungary is in the EU, while that has not stopped Orban from kind of consolidating this one-party state and this soft authoritarianism, it does put some outer bound to how far he'll go. So I don't think, you know, he's going to go the full uh, lengths of someone like Erdogan or these other, or Putin or these other elected autocrats who lock up their opponents and arrest journalists. 
you know, because he's in the EU, that sort of tames how far he'll go. Uh, so he'll, you know, uh, use um, cronies of his to buy and shut down opposition newspapers, for instance, but he won't actually arrest the journalists, as you would see in a harsher authoritarianism. So you know, his regime... Uh, will, I think, remain a kind of soft authoritarianism. That said, we may I think we can expect to see further crackdowns on civil society organizations. They already announced today that they're going to go after NGOs that have uh, tried to work uh, with supporting you know, refugees who come to the country and they're, they're treating them as kind of enemies of the government and suspect. You were mentioning there the European Union, and I, we heard uh, Nigel Farage a year ago talking about Hungary and Orban, and we've got a clip from him, and he's trying to woo Orban over to his side in this clip. Well, Mr. Orban, not for the first time. You sit here as the democratically elected leader of a great nation, and you stand up and make a reasoned argument as to how the Hungarians do things and how actually there are different cultures within Europe. And you're prepared again and again to come back here and to be attacked and abused by non-entities who want Hungary to bow to their will and not to the will of the Hungarian people or its leader. And I'm beginning to wonder, at what point, sir, do you as an intelligent man stop banging your head up against a wall? Why doesn't Orban ditch the EU if he doesn't like it so much? Well, uh, first of all, as usual, uh, Nigel Farage is talking a bunch of nonsense. Uh, but why doesn't Orban ditch the EU? He depends incredibly on the EU. Hungary gets every year uh, roughly 6% of GDP handed to it in EU funds, right? Uh, because it's the highest amount per capita of any EU member state. So we have this irony, right, that uh, Orban runs this campaign largely you know, against criticizing the EU and uh, its refugee policy and these sort of things and bashes the EU, but he is uh, completely dependent on EU support. Um, you know, if you think of kind of public infrastructure, things like that, capital investments, almost all of that in Hungary is co-financed by the EU. And um, uh, so he, he depends on the EU funds to prop up his regime. That's number one. And number two, you know, another misleading thing Faraj was saying, you're saying that you're being attacked and abused by the EU. That's completely untrue. In fact, uh, Orban, uh, f with great frustration of many people, has been uh, regularly defended by some of the leading political forces in the EU, namely the center-right uh, European People's Party, which is the kind of party that Merkel's own Christian Democrats are a member of. At the EU level, they have a, a kind of pan-European party of these center-right parties called the European People's Party. And Orban's Fides is a member of that group, and they have protected him when other uh, actors at the EU level and some in the commission or others in the parliament have said, oh, we should crack down on the attacks on rule of law and democracy in Hungary. That EPP party has uh, consistently defended him. You know, I noticed that Roger Cohen in the New York Times was talking about the European Union and Orban, and he, he, thought, he thinks the, that the EU should just start cutting off money, that somebody's got to man up and start uh, dropping some bombs on Orban to, to make him, make him uh, come around. Well, I agree, absolutely. Uh, I mean, there's been a, a number of stories coming out lately uh, you know, just uh, revealing more and more of the corruption going on in Hungary. And you see that you know, a lot of the people who are becoming very wealthy off of um, EU-funded infrastructure projects in Hungary are people closely connected to Orban, people he, uh, in the inner circle of his Fidesz party, 
or uh, one of this big magnate, big magnates in Hungary now is from the home village of Orban, and they grew up together and knew each other, and he su- suddenly became fabulously wealthy. Some people suspect he's a kind of you know bagman or something like that for Orban. That's all a bit murky, but um, uh, I think there's no question that until and unless the EU is willing to sort of cut off uh, the funds to governments who undermine the independence of the judiciary who uh, violate the core democratic norms of the EU, that um, you know, these governments will just keep doing that. Who in the EU does that? Uh, I, the, the European Commission? Does that, is it the parliament? What, what, who, who, who would cut the funds? Okay, yeah. Who, no, so uh, there's a couple different um, – this gets a little technical. I'll try to keep it simple. Under And there's a lot of debate about this and people are saying, oh, well, we need to add new provisions in the next round of the EU budget allowing the EU to suspend funds to governments who you know, don't respect the rule of law and democratic norms, etc. I would say they already have that authority because you've seen many instances when the commission, to answer your question, was one of the, the executive actor of the EU, has at least temporarily suspended funds to countries when it detected irregularities in you know, their their spending and their oversight of the spending of EU money, right? So they could already use those tools uh, to go after countries where the rule of law is not reliable, where you don't have independent courts like Hungary or like Poland. So they could already do that. That would be the commission. The other way you could do it, right, is through the council, which is the body where all the governments meet together at the EU level. So the, the heads of government, there's a, a procedure where they uh, can uh, sanction countries who violated the EU's core norms. But I don't think that's going anywhere, frankly, because um, Kaczynski's uh, party, the Peace Party in Poland, has promised to protect Orban. Orban's promised to protect the Polish government. And you really need unanimity uh, of governments uh, to impose those sanctions. So the short answer is it would have to be the commission um, that would uh, at least temporarily suspend the flow of funds. I'm talking with Daniel Kellerman, professor of political science at Rutgers University, and we're discussing Hungary's Viktor Orban and the big electoral victory yesterday in Hungary. I wanted to talk about the George Soros situation there. Here is George Soros, somebody who um, granted uh, money to Viktor Orban when he was a young man to to get a, a grant to go to go to Oxford. And um, now here we have Viktor Orban campaigning against George Soros vigorously. His uh, university that he set up in Budapest is in legal limbo. There's something called the Stop Soros legal package that they are going to consider in parliament after this big election victory. Um, Why is this so darn popular to do? Well, first of all, when um, the kind of very conservative Hungarians who he's trying to appeal to uh, with these anti-Soros messages, when they hear the, the name Soros, they immediately associate that. Everyone in Hungary knows that he's Jewish, you know, he's a Holocaust survivor. And so when Orban does this attack, he's trying to play into these uh, old, well-rehearsed uh, tropes uh, in uh, Hungary on the, the far right of anti-Semitism uh, that depict um, international Jewish bankers as controlling the world and those sort of things. It's like a version of the elders uh, or the protocols of the elders of Zion or something like that. So he's he's playing on anti-Semitic stereotypes. That's the main thing. And the other thing I'd say is that um, really uh, Orban's whole style of populist governance 
depends on having an enemy that he can kind of promise to be protecting the people from. So for a while, that enemy was the the migrants who were coming into the country back 2015, 16, when there were big numbers of migrants marching through Hungary trying to get into Austria and Germany. So that was the enemy and the danger. But now with the Balkan route um, from the Middle East cut off and with uh, the fence built, etc., there are no migrants coming to Hungary, barely any at all, right? And so he needed a new enemy, so he went back to the old playbook of the um, you know, international bank, Jewish banking conspiracy, Jew, uh, Orban, sorry, Shorosh, and tried to get people scared that he would um, flood their country with migrants, uh, was the, the argument. He said he's working to open up Hungary with, to millions of migrants. What has happened here with Viktor Orban? I mentioned at the top that uh, he may have perfected the populist playbook. Steve Bannon calls him a hero. The rest of the world looks at how this guy is doing it and seems to be taking inspiration from him. You know, I think one of the keys um, it comes down to something, uh, maybe I'm too much of a political science nerd or something, but it comes down to institutions, right, that he had the good fortune, Orban, that when he won this election victory in 2010, the the system in Hungary, the, even the old electoral system before he rigged it more in his favor, it, it was a system that was quite yeah, disproportional. So it meant that he um, uh, was able to translate his you know healthy electoral victory, but not you know swamping the others into a two thirds majority right in seats in parliament. So that's number one. So he got these two-thirds seats. And then the Hungarian constitution uh, provided that uh, the constitution could be amended if you have two-thirds of the seats in parliament. So let's say unlike the U.S. system where the uh, procedure for amending the constitution is a really high bar, right? And uh, you'd have to really get a, a broad consensus to overcome all the hurdles to amend our constitution. In the Hungarian, from the moment he had two-thirds of the seats, he could amend the constitution. And then what that allowed him to do, he just seized the moment and con- uh, put through a new constitution that consolidated power in his hands. So he, I guess my point is he had uh, the ability because of that sort of uh, that set of rules to, in a way that was not blatantly illegal, right, because he was doing this following the two-thirds power he had, to consolidate power in a way that all autocrats would want but few uh, get the chance to, to have. Our Daniel Kellerman is Professor of Political Science and John Monet Chair in European Union Politics at Rutgers University. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about Viktor Orban and what's happening in Hungary. Thank you. Pleasure. Coming up after the break, harassment, discrimination, and inequality are common in the workplace for women. I'll talk with three female colleagues about their experiences in journalism. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're going to talk about race, gender, and class in journalism now with three of our favorite people. Monica Eng is here. She is Curious City reporter for WBEZ. Natalie Moore is here. She's Southside reporter for BEZ. And Linda Lutton is our education reporter here at WBEZ. And thank you all for joining us. Thank Thanks you for too, having Jerome. us. You know, everyone is talking about this being a moment in journalism where people are thinking and inspecting and talking. I'm sitting here in front of a pile of stories. Women of color are severely underrepresented in newsrooms, study says. National Geographic acknowledges its racist past. There's all sorts of searching. Does this feel like a moment to you from where you're sitting? Natalie? No. <laughs> nor, nor is it for no, me. No, I mean, I've been in journalism 20 years, and every newsroom I've been in, we've talked about diversity issues. The American Society of Newspaper Editors puts out their report every year. Public radio is now, and public media is now in the mix for years. It had been ignored. Magazine journalism is abysmal. I think it's one of the last frontiers because they don't even deal with this issue. So it's great that the conversation is happening, maybe for people who hadn't been thinking about it, but it doesn't feel like a moment because this has been going on since I got into journalism, and it was going on way before I got in. When I got to the Chicago Tribune in the mid-'90s, there was tons of talk and actually some action. There's the MET program that actively kind of mentored people of color in journalism. I noticed I was on committees where they said, hey, you know, let's make sure we get – as as diverse a staff as possible. And then as I saw newspaper budgets shrinking, you stopped hearing these conversations. It just kind of went away. And I don't see an emphasis on creating more diverse newsrooms as much as I did 20 years ago. I think, like Natalie said, it's an ongoing discussion within journalism. But I think that because of the time we are in, because of sort of the way society is looking at a lot of structural questions and institutions, I think that's why we're seeing sort of the outside attention to journalism. And I also think there's a demand from minority communities and women to have their stories told the way they want them told. How would you define diversity? Is the outcome the thing that you want to see diverse or is the institutional hierarchy the true test of diversity? Natalie? I teach journalism off and on. Taught at Columbia College, taught at Wayne State in Detroit. I'm teaching at Medill right now. And the first thing I tell students is there's no such thing as objectivity. We're all subjective. Mm -hmm. So let's just throw that out the window. You can be fair and balanced, be nuanced. There's usually more than two sides to tell the multiple views. Being subjective is okay because a newsroom should be a place where there are multiple viewpoints, multiple life experiences, and those things can inform you if they don't get in the way. Well, I'm just a white male. No, you're not just a white male. Where are you from? Like, there's something in your life that has shaped you no matter who you are. When we see management, we start to see the same types of people, whether it's the business side management or even the editors. I remember working in newsrooms and at the you know morning meeting to decide what goes in the paper the next day. Everyone was white and suburban and had small kids. So those are the kind of stories that got on the front page. And so if your editor, if your leadership is all the same type of person who all lives in the same community, all at the same life point, then that can be a problem in shaping the coverage and seeing what gets in print or on the air. I would like to see more diversity, you know, people whose parents didn't go to college, people from the north side, south side, west side. Uh, So diversity isn't just being Latino or Asian or African-American, 
but, you know, having more people who are for same-sex marriage because they're in a same-sex marriage in leadership roles in the newspapers and at radio stations. I think that's important, too. And I think that shows up in the coverage. Well, how do you respond to, I mean, it seems like most newsrooms measure diversity by numbers. They're just going to put out, uh, here's NPRs, 75% white, 8.8% black, 7% Asian, 6% Latino, 2% multiracial. And that's what diversity is. It's one way to do it. Is it a perfect way? No. I think that's what gets the most rich coverage when you have people who have all sorts of life experiences weighing in and being able to look at something and saying, ah, you know what? I don't know if you want to use that word or run that headline. Because I think when you get these monochrome and uh, monolithic newsrooms, you end up having some blind spots. For a local newsroom, I mean, I think the real goal, one of the real goals should be connections to all our various communities. And that would recognize diversity even, for instance, within the city of Chicago, West Side and South Side. Um, those are two different communities. Mm-hmm. And I think from a management standpoint and a number standpoint, sometimes we can just get into sort of checking the boxes or saying, oh, we have X percent of our reporters are black. But I think the question for a local newsroom should be, do we have good, deep connections? to West Side communities? Do we have good, deep connections to our Latino communities? What about our suburban Latino communities? Mm -hmm. What about our South Side communities? So I think that should be a consideration. Have you ever seen diverse leadership work and change a newsroom? I can say I've never worked in a newsroom that's had diverse leadership. If we're already talking about extremely low numbers just in terms of racial and ethnic diversity in newsrooms broadly, that gets even more alarming at the management level, at editors' levels. I've seen it work at the Tribune. For instance, Jeff Brown was the features editor for a while, and he really had some input into what we covered. And it was He often brought a perspective that all the other editors of the Tribune were not bringing to the table. So I've seen it work, but you know what? I'll be honest. I've got a lot of friends and some dear people to me in management of the Tribune. It is not as diverse as it was at one time. How would you characterize diversity? I I mean, sometimes I think of organizations ghettoize diversity and they say, hey, we've got a South Side reporter. We have checked the box. We don't need to go further. It puts diversity in a box. Does that feel like something that happens? That is something that I am sensitive to and try to get it in front of. I think that a number of reporters cover different kinds of communities and two of them are are sitting right here. They don't have to be told to do that. Um, You have to do that if you're covering Chicago public schools. The kind of work that Monica is doing, I think it's been intentional. She doesn't always have to do that. I have deep connections to black communities here, but I never want to be seen as the black reporter. Um, These issues intersect with almost every reporting position. No matter what it is that you're covering, if something diverse, quote unquote, comes across your desk, we have to be cognizant and let other people do these things as well. I think there's a real danger in terms of coverage of sort of quote unquote ghettoizing or, you know, putting all our staff of color in a particular radio station or on a particular desk. Schools is a great example. You know, I cover a school system that's 92 percent non-white. Honestly, most of my time as a Chicago citizen is spent in non-white communities. I'm married into an, a non-white community. I live in a non-white community. I've raised three kids who identify as Mexican. 
you know, one of those kids goes to a majority African-American school, like my own personal life is mostly spent in non-white Chicago. I hope that perspective informs the way I cover schools. And I think if we ghettoize reporters, to use your term, Jerome, I mean, I think we miss out on the experience that they can bring to all kinds of beats. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald talking with Monica Eng, Curious City reporter for WBEZ, Natalie Moore, Southside reporter for WBEZ, and Linda Lutton, our education reporter. And we're talking about race, gender, and class in journalism. Uh, let's talk more about gender. I mean, we've seen this gigantic Me Too movement out there, and there's a lot of discussion, you know, within public radio and a lot of controversies within public radio about sexual harassment. What do you guys think? Is this something that is you've had experience with that uh, you see as changing? I feel pretty fortunate to say that I haven't had any sexual harassment experiences working in newsrooms. Now being outside of the newsroom covering people, have I been hit on? Yes. Have I been groped? No. People still hit on me from time to time, and you just shut it down and you you move on. I do feel like newsrooms can feel at different moments very male. And I haven't felt that's hampered my career. I guess I just look at it and say, oh, they're all throwing a football around right now. Or, uh, you know, I think it's partly because of leadership within newsrooms. You know, we know from the numbers that leadership in newsrooms, no matter whether you're talking about radio or newspapers, it's predominantly male. And I think newspapers still have this feel of a very sort of male institution in some cases. You know, I was surprised to read the statistics about the number of women coming out of journalism schools. It's well over 50 percent women in journalism and communications. And then in the hiring practices, it's much less than 50 percent. What's up with that? Do you have any? Well, I, I do think to kind of Monica's point, I think that women have to think about work-life balance in a way that men don't have to or that society mm-hmm. doesn't force them to think that way. Even look at foreign correspondents. The female world correspondents tend to be single. Foreign yeah. correspondents, they tend to be single. And if the women have a child, like, say, Kelly McEvers, she could tell over it. Oh, really? You went into a war zone and you have a small child? How could you do that? How many men do they say that about? You know, Anne-Marie Lipinski, who used to be editor of the Chicago Tribune, said something that stuck with me. I heard her speak and she said this idea of balance, like it's not going to be 50-50 every day. Like some days I'm with my daughter more and some days it's 80-20 percent. And it's unfortunate. Women have to always think about these issues. A male expectation kind of thing that you feel infringes on, on what you're trying to do? Do you think guys get treated the same way or differently about parenting? Well, they get treated differently. I think we know that from just about any study possible, and especially when you have small children. I mean, really, news is a very hard business to be in and be simultaneously a parent. You have almost no control over your schedule. So it's very tough for women, especially with smaller kids, yeah, to also be competitive in their newsrooms. I think you see that in terms of sort of who climbs the ladder and who is moved toward management and who also gets um, sort of the plum jobs in journalism. You know, the prized jobs in journalism are the investigative jobs, um, the long-term project team jobs. I don't have numbers in front of me, but those feel, in my experience, overwhelmingly male 
Um, so I don't know that it's anything intentional, but I do think also we know that men hire other men. When I was having my kids in the late 90s, there was still this expectation. We were sort of bridging it uh, where, let's say, Ellen Warren, she was this veteran reporter. She said, I felt like I had to come right back to work just a few weeks after my kids were born and just get back in there with the guys and be as competitive. I didn't want them to see me as like, oh, she's got a handicap because she's a woman. And then speaking of Anne-Marie Lipinski, she was one of the first female executive journalists in in our circle who like took off six months. We're like, whoa, she can take off six months and still have her job back? I couldn't afford that. But a lot of my colleagues who were having babies at the Tribune at the time felt like they could prioritize their child. But as any of us know, those weeks, those first months back are the hardest thing. You feel like a crap journalist and a crap mom, and you feel like you're never going to be able to get this balance back. And I'm not sure how many men also, and maybe you do, but I'm not sure how many also had that same feeling coming back. Maybe I can share one experience I think that might be interesting, and that's reporting on the education beat. This beat is different, I think, than most other beats in that it's 70% women working on the beat, and that's a number I'm getting from an Education Writers Association huh. survey. And also 20% of the reporters on that beat nationwide are non-white, so that's also a higher percentage than it is in general across all beats in newsrooms. Why do you think that number is? Do men not see that as a status position? They don't want to be a education? Yeah, actually, the education beat is a pretty interesting look at sort of how journalism could shift through having more women involved. Exactly right, Jerome. Like, education has been seen, and I actually do not know why. It's like becoming a teacher. It is ghettoized, Yeah. Yeah, it's like becoming feminized. Yes, feminized as seen as a beat for women. It was also always seen as sort of a stepping stone. So if a man were assigned to a an education beat, it's a temporary thing, right? Sort of like <laughs> obit writer. But I actually think the heavy presence of women on this beat and some of the very excellent schools reporting being done by those women is shifting how we think about education reporting. And another thing that study showed, and I do think this is a direct reflection of how women view a beat, is you have fewer reporters seeing that beat now as a stepping stone. Well, and speaking of ghettoizing certain areas of journalism, uh, I can say this now because the women news section is gone, but the women news section at the Tribune was seen by some, and it was kind of proven, that if you did something bad, if you crossed the editor, guess what section you got sent to? There was a very high-profile person who had a very high-profile job at the Tribune who crossed an editor, and basically they wanted him to quit, so they made him a copy editor on Women News. And that is really insulting to women. And then they finally got rid of the section because, you know, why cover women? <laughs> we always felt like, why can't the whole paper cover women? I did um, not know yes. that. I did, I, I, I did do some freelancing for Women yeah. News. The um, Monique, wow, that sounds like a yeah, I know sanitary product. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> What kind of advice would you have for people in decision-making authority positions to do better? One of the things that you often hear is, we couldn't find anyone qualified. I hear that all the time, yeah. yeah. There we are tried. There are a number of organizations. The National Association of Black Journalists, Hispanic, Asian, Native American, these were organizations that started in the 70s as a response to getting these groups into mainstream newsrooms, not the ethnic press. They have conventions every year. There's also the National Group for Gay and Lesbian Journalists as well. Mm -hmm. So there are resources out there. There are conventions, there are conferences, there are local chapters, there are listservs. 
there's no reason that you shouldn't have a pool. So it has to be nurturing, cultivation, and also retention. It's not just hiring the people, but are you giving them the same opportunities that other people have in the newsrooms? We see inequity and unfairness in newsrooms. People are, are favored. And it's natural for people to favor people who look like them. You know, it's kind of how nature works, unfortunately. So people have to say to themselves, wait a minute, am I doing that? And you can't expect someone of a different background to just come in and be cookie cutter just like John Doe is. Sometimes it's going to take a little cultivation to say, hey, you know what? Here's how we do things. Or I'd love to understand how your background can make our coverage richer. I think the retention point is really important. And I think developing people from within, sort of seeing potential leaders within the ranks of your newsroom, I think that's an easy one and it's often overlooked by management. We have to get a much more creative. There is absolutely no reason that a newsroom in the city of Chicago shouldn't be a third white, a third black, and a third Latino, or a quarter, a quarter, a quarter. I don't know how we fit the Asians in there, but, uh, you know, this is a city yeah, that's so been a third, a third, a third, a <laughs> third. And, yeah, I'll try to fit you in, <laughs> Monica. We're keeping you. You know, there really isn't any excuse. You have budding journalists out there who come from our communities who are so talented and why the disconnect, sort of why those young people are not ending up in our newsrooms and then moving up through our newsrooms. I think that's something that all newsrooms have to think a lot harder about. In theory, if we had a diverse newsroom and you would have a different media outcome, it seems like the leadership does not want that sometimes. I mean, when you're talking about, well, we want to hear the kind of stories we're familiar with. We want to hear the kind of stories we think are important. And if this young person or this woman or this person of color thinks this story is important, the value does not translate. You won't end up promoting people because they're doing stories that you don't think are important. You don't end up retaining them because they're doing stories you don't think are important. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, we've talked about management, but there's also middle management. So there's reporters, then there the middle managers, and then there's leadership. And middle managers get really stuck between the reporters complaining to them and then the top leadership doing the same. But I think the strongest middle managers or your first line editors, if you will, are the ones that promote those kinds of stories. Say, hey, this is a really off the beaten path story. This should really go on page one. And I actually think this is where it ties back to sort of the larger movement that you see in society and the push from black and brown communities, for instance, to be represented in a way that they want to see their communities represented. I think it's actually that push, which becomes a push on editors who are assigning stories. There is a conversation between the society at large and journalists and journalism and how all the sausage gets made. And I think that's where part of the pressure comes from that leads to change. Monica Eng is a Curious City reporter for WBEZ. She reported the radio story, Bearing It All, Why Boys Swim Naked in Chicago High Schools. Natalie Moore is WBEZ's Southside reporter. She's author of the book, The Southside, A Portrait of Chicago and American Segregation. And Linda Lutton is our education reporter. She did the radio story, The View from Room 205, Can Schools Make the American Dream Real for Poor Kids? Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks so much, Jerome. Coming up after the break, we're going to find out about a celebration of the halal lifestyle. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The first ever Halal Lifestyle Festival comes to Navy Pier for three days starting Friday. With me is Asma Ahad, co-managing director of the I Heart Halal Festival. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks for having me. Tell me, uh, where did this come from, this idea for a halal lifestyle festival? This is the first one ever in North America. What, what, where, what's that? So basically what we're looking to do is create a platform that gives voice to the halal consumer. And the idea came from working in the industry and seeing that a lot of retailers and food manufacturers or even um, manufacturers in other areas such as pharmaceuticals, makeup, and uh, fashion are catering to the needs of Muslims in different ways, but they're not targeting them in a way that's coherent and makes sense and meets all of their needs. So there's a, we, what we recognize is there's a real opportunity um, to do that. I think when a lot of listeners hear the word halal, they just strictly think food and not uh, the broader lifestyle definition that the festival has. You've got a lot going on with fashion, with comedians, with uh, a whole whole suite of things. Yep. We have, uh, I say, food to fashion, travel to makeup. We've got it all in this festival. Um, we have Nora Afia, who is the first ambassador, first hijabi cover girl ambassador, joining us to do beauty master classes and um, with her, where NYX Cosmetics is uh, sponsoring her makeup master classes. So we've gotten a mainstream cosmetics um, manufacturer joining our event and sponsoring her, her piece. We also have um, fashion. We're, we're doing a high-end modest fashion show where we have a choreographer from the U.K. joining us. And we, are, uh, we have Akira, uh, who is a regular label on, in Chicago malls. And they are demonstrating that they have clothing uh, that meets all types of the needs of all types of women, including Muslim women. They have a lot of clothes that meet uh, the modest uh, needs of Muslim women. On Saturday night, you've got a huge uh, comedy showcase, America's Least Wanted Comedy Showcase, and it's really top-flight talent. Azar Usman, who's been on the show a few times, is hilarious, and he's hosting it for you. But you've got uh, Mo Amer, who's uh, uh, a terrific comedian, lots of big headliners. Yeah, and what's great in this in this lineup is you see the diversity of Muslims in America. You have Zainab Johnson, who's African-American, Mo Amr, who's Arab, Azhar Usman, who's Indo-Pak, Ahmed Weinberg, who is, um, he's your everyday American. <laughs> so it's kind of like you've got this, that's what American Muslims are. These, this is who they oh, are. Yes. When you go to a, any big Muslim event, it is the most fun thing because it is the most diverse thing you've yeah. ever seen. And what you're going to see is a lot of diversity at this event. And you're going to see the relevance of everyday products to the Muslim consumer. And you're also going to see the relevance of the Muslim consumer to the rest of society. And you're going to see that in our culinary demonstrations, in our fashion show, in our makeup, in our comedy, all of that. I'm talking with Asma Ahmed, and she's co-managing director of the I Heart Halal Festival. And also with us is Yvonne Maffei, and she is a chef and culinary writer for My Halal Kitchen, which is a website. It is a book, and it's great to meet you. Thank you so much for having me. I was looking over your website, which was making me hungry. I was telling you before we went on the air, it, it looks really terrific and just like a lot of great recipes and food. Thank you. It, it's yummy. Thank you so much. That's a good thing. Good to hear. <laughs> how did you get started with this? Why? How did you start My Halal Kitchen? 
Well, I didn't grow up eating halal. I didn't grow up as a Muslim. And so later on in life, when I embraced this lifestyle, I um, thought, you know, how can I eat the same foods that I grew up eating, particularly Sicilian, Italian foods? And on my dad's side, and my mom is Puerto Rican, and I grew up in America, in, in Ohio. So you can imagine the diversity of food that I was accustomed to, um, traveled a lot, saw a lot of countries on the, around the world, and just a foodie before foodie was a term, I think you could you know, call it. And um, then I just was so interested in halal as uh, in, in my own home. You know, how do I make all these Italian foods halal that I grew up with? And then I realized, you know, I'm probably not the only one trying to figure this out. And so I started documenting the recipes and then um, was crazy enough to start the website and, um, you know, just never looked back from there because I thought, you know, it was something I really, really wanted to do. And you were you nice enough to bring with you a, the classic <laughs> Italian dessert, tiramisu. Yes. Obviously, it has uh, no booze in it this no time. No booze, no booze. So this is a, a very Sicilian, I think, dessert. I mean, I grew up having it. And the thing is that it typically has some sort of alcohol in it, like amaretto or rum, um, but doesn't mean we can't halalify it. We can put substitutes in it that make it completely halal. And so in my case, I either buy alcohol-free extracts, um, like vanilla extract, or I make my own. So I have recipes in my cookbook for making your own types of extracts, so you don't even have to bother with store-bought ones. But it means that we can enjoy these wonderful desserts without sacrificing culture and authenticity, you know, just making a few tweaks. And some of the processed foods have gelatin in them, so I don't want any of that in my um, foods, which Oh, it's delicious. Oh, you'd like it. Okay, great. <laughs> I knew it was going to be good because on your website, it's one of the more popular uh, recipes I saw in the best recipes. It's uh, The tiramisu is right there at the top. Everybody's awesome. going for it. Do you taste the zest? I put orange zest and lemon zest in it. And I actually did a little tweak because I, it typically has mascarpone cream in it, which is a it's a very – it's an unsweetened uh, cheese, uh, cream cheese right. that's Italian. But – a lot of people have a hard time finding it, or maybe they don't have it in their stores. So this one actually is cream cheese mixed with a little bit of half and half, and then I added, um, you know, the zest and, and some honey. So there's no processed sugars or anything like that. So I hope you know it's to your liking. But I think it just shows the various tweaks that people can make to make some really great halal dishes. It's interesting the Italian um, angle here. There's lots of Italian food with booze in it, isn't yes. there? Yes, yes, there is. And I think as Asma was talking about the diversity of the Muslim community, um, I am one of those examples in which you know I, I didn't grow up in the Muslim world. I didn't come from a Muslim family, but there are so many Muslims from so many parts of the world. There are people who've you know grown up in this country who adopted the religion and and you know, just want to live a normal life and eat wonderful food. And so I think you know what I do is sort of a testament to, you know, d- digging deep into our own cultural roots and saying, you know, you can embrace all that is good, all that is delicious, um, maybe make a few tweaks on the alcohol or pork products, but, you know, go on, enjoy and eat the abundance that is halal. What do you do about vodka sauce? Oh, I have a recipe in this book for penne without the vodka. So I tried to cover all my bases. <laughs> good going. Yeah. Uh, I'm talking with Yvonne Maffei, and she's a chef and culinary writer for My Halal Kitchen. And she's taking part in the I Heart Halal Festival, which is on Navy Pier for three days starting Friday. What are you mm-hmm. going to do at the festival? Oh, I'm super excited because I have two culinary demos that I'm going to. One is all Italian food. So it's going to be pasta carbonara. How do you make that without the pancetta? So I'll have a delicious halal substitute for that. Because I really want to encourage people to try new things maybe they haven't tried or dig into the recipes they they might see on Food Network or other places where they think, oh, there's 
pork in it and I can't make it. No, you can make it. Here are some substitutes to try. And, um, you know, just giving them some inspiration for that. So that'll be a full-on Italian demo. And then I'll have some desserts like the tiramisu and some Ramadan um, recipes. We have Ramadan as our holy month of fasting coming up, but we really like to eat when it's time to eat. So <laughs> I'm giving some ideas for, for Ramadan there. And then the other demo will be a, a, a Moroccan spread. So we'll do a tagine, we'll do some salads, and really talk about you know incorporating lots and lots of fruits, fruits and vegetables into our, our meals and digging into part of the world that you know Muslims typically love, uh, you know, North African foods and so on. So it's a little bit of both. It's a little bit of uh, Muslim world, new, you know, new recipes. And I, I think that's, that's really demonstrative of our community as a whole. How often do you see restaurants embrace halal? I, I don't think I've ever seen a, <laughs> a kind of run-of-the-mill restaurant say, oh, have, we have a halal uh, version of this. It's changing. It's growing. And that's such a fantastic thing for foodies. I see halal on menus in restaurants that might only have a partial halal menu, but it means that they're trying to source halal products particularly like chicken and beef. and the, So it means that they, they're paying attention to the audience. Asma? Yeah, it, it, I think Oakbrook has Monami Gabi. They have a separate halal menu. Yeah. And I see, uh, when I go there, I see a steady group of patrons who come and mm-hmm. ask for the halal menu. Steak. There's steak, steak there. There's steak. It's <laughs> often. It's awesome. And one of the things, one of the points of this whole event is this platform of halal is accessible. Mm-hmm. It's It's not... It's not hard to accomplish meeting the needs of the halal consumer, whether it be in fashion, travel, or food. Exactly. And I'm going to take food because we're on the subject of food. Mm-hmm. But with like the globalization of the food industry, a lot of food companies are already producing their food, their ingredients to be halal. Like companies like Fermanich, uh, Danisco, they already have a large portion of their ingredients that meet um, halal standards. So when companies and restaurants are interested in sourcing halal foods or halal ingredients to produce halal items on their menu, they're finding that it's not difficult. And one of the things, my personal experience is this in working with university uh, food service facilities and sourcing halal ingredients. And what they find is they think it's going to be impossible and it turns out to be pretty feasible and pretty popular. I think also that um, it's a testament to the wider um, um, interest in halal, not just from Muslims, but I, I get people all the time who, you know, maybe never tried halal, but they're just really interested in the transparency of the halal uh, processed products or, you know, the, the sourcing is trackable. And so people like that. They like to know what's in their food, what are the food ingredients they're consuming today. So I think this is a great um, bridging the gap event to, to bring people together to kind of learn more about each other and to, you know, feast over great food and just kind of get to know each other. So anybody who doesn't know anything about well, I would say definitely this is the place to come and learn and um, enjoy all the wonderful Our invitation things. is to everybody because yeah. halal is all good and it's for everyone. We, we're reaching out to all communities um, within the Muslim mm-hmm. communities as well, as well as outside. We have a director of interfaith outreach that has reached out to um, this Catholic Theological Union, the Holocaust Museum, the Anti-Defamation League. We've invited everybody because halal is relevant for everybody because it's good. It's what's, what's, you know, the the concept of transparency and healthy. It's all in here across the board, across a lot of different sectors. Well, it sounds like it's going to be a a lot of fun and very (laughs) enjoyable. There's, I mean, I mentioned the comedies, but there's also a a panel discussion on, I don't want to be a doctor, some who've taken the path less traveled. That's really, (laughs) that's it. So I'm glad you bring that up because when we were researching and looking at 
what does the Muslim population look like? A lot of the immigrant populations, there's a strong tendency to to gear towards um, STEM careers. And this is a panel being produced by uh, a group of millennials that are on our team, and they are they they want to create a conversation about people who are successful who aren't. Um, you know, have to, who haven't taken the traditional career path. Research shows us that one in five households that are Muslim in North America have either a PhD or MD in that, and which is great. It's great to be educated, but there's you know there's a lot of doctors in our community, so they're looking to say that people could be successful being a chef, people could be successful being a comedian. I've seen a lot of kids want to be chefs now. <laughs> I right. get lots of emails about that, mm-hmm. so hopefully we'll encourage some some uh, career paths. I think we have an astronaut coming. We have Olympian Iftihaj Muhammad coming. Uh, we have several entrepreneurs coming. So we're really excited about about the about these panels. Well, it sounds like it's going to be a super good time and it's going to be here at Navy Pier. It starts on Friday and you've already sold thousands of tickets and are expecting to sell thousands more. It's going to be a crowded pier and that's terrific. Yep, and we have an exciting offer for WBZ listeners of Worldview. Uh, We are offering for the first hundred um, people who buy tickets uh, after listening to this program, they can put in promo code WBEZ and they get a free general admission ticket. General admission tickets are $5 and we're offering a hundred of those free for uh, um, worldview listeners. That's terrific. Promo code WBEZ and the I Heart Halal Festival starts on Friday and Saturday and Sunday here at Navy Pier. And Yvonne Maffei has been here. She's a chef and culinary writer with My Halal Kitchen, the website and the book. And it's been great meeting you. Thanks for bringing the Tierra Misu. You're very welcome. Enjoy it. And thanks to Asma Ahmed as she's a co-managing director of the I Heart Halal Festival. It's been great to meet you. Congratulations on the event, the first one in North America. Thanks for having us. Tomorrow on Worldview, we are going to talk about the situation with Syria and the U.S. response to it. Hope you can join us for that tomorrow on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Galilee Abdullah and Anna Waters for production assistance and Mike Gilmore for engineering. Daniel Musisi curated our music. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.